This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm Dr. Joanna Albala. I'm the Science Education Manager at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, and I'd like to welcome you all to Science on Saturday 2018. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, the theme of our series this, uh, this year is Marvelous Machines, and you're going to hear about the equipment and technology that allows for scientific discovery at the laboratory. So today we're going to hear about a really exciting machine that's located in the Bay Area and how that machine is used to make movies of biomolecules. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our team, Dr. Matthias Frank, who's a physicist who got his PhD at the Max Planck Institute for Physics in Germany, Dr. Megan Shelby, who's a biophysical chemist who got her PhD at Northwestern, and Erin McKay, who is a biologist from Tracy High School, who got her degree at UC Davis. All right, so without further ado, let's get started. Okay, good morning, everyone. We're going to talk about marvelous machines. We have two marvelous machines here. One is a huge machine. It's called an X-ray laser, and it's actually located right here in the Bay Area. The other one is a molecular machine. It's a tiny, tiny protein complex that performs complex functions in the body. We're using the huge machine to actually study the tiny machines. So first, uh, let's get us uh, situated. This is a satellite image of the Bay Area. You see Livermore on the top right, San Francisco on the top left, San Jose. And then uh, you see where Stanford is, the Stanford campus, and right next to it is SLAC. SLAC is the SLAC National Accelerator Lab, which used to be a, a lab doing a lot of particle physics research. So they have big accelerators there. In particular, they have a very long linear accelerator that was three kilometers long. And after they were done with some of the particle physics experiments, they actually reconfigured that accelerator and used part of it to build the X-ray laser. And the X-ray laser is called LCLS. So LCLS stands for Linux Coherent Light Source. It's located at SLAC. And we use that for many different scientific applications, but one prominent one is to study the structure and function of biomolecules. So why, why do we care about structure? Um, we care about structure in biology because often the structure of a biological object is related to its function. And this is true for the macro world and the micro world. So here's an example from the macro world. Fennec fox has huge ears, and those, those ears basically act like a, a radar antenna that captures electromagnetic waves. These ears capture sound waves and give that fennec fox really, really good hearing. In the micro world, you know, for example, we have bacteria here. Here's a picture of Helicobacter pylori, which is a, a bug that lives in the stomach of people and can cause ulcers. Um, also, these uh, mini objects or nano objects, they have structure. Um, there's this little wiggly thing on the right that you see. Um, and if we uh, you know, try to figure out what, what is this for, you know, we can guess that maybe this is something that helps the, the bug with propulsion moving, moving around. And as you can see, and this is not a real video or a real movie, it's a computer animated movie. It's just how we think this works. You see that flagella acting like a little propeller, helping that bug to move around. So we are interested in the biological micro and nano world. 
And before we go any further, we, we should actually talk about what, what does micro and nano mean. Thank you very much. So, micro world, nano world, those are a bunch of prefixes. Oh, wait, they're scientific prefixes for measurement. So, if we take a look up here, we see I have what you might think is a yardstick, but it's actually a meter stick. Meter being our base unit of measure of length. As you can see, I am taller than a meter, but definitely not taller than two meters. Okay. And if we break it down, you see, if you've ever played with one of these, this is 100 centimeters long. So 100 centimeters fit within a meter. And if you look at the itsy-bitsy teeny-weeny lines, those itsy-bitsy teeny-weeny lines would be millimeters. So 1,000 millimeters within a meter. That does not get us to the micro world. Micro world is within the millimeters. 1,000 micrometers fit within the tiny little space between two millimeters. A million micrometers fit on a meter stick. Very, very small. And then to get down to nanometer, that's one one billionth. A billion, imagine cutting this thing into a billion even little tiny pieces. That's just so tiny. So let's make sure we understand how that fits within our biological context. So humans are on the meter scale, flies on the centimeter scale, cells are on the micrometer scale. So that bacteria we saw swimming across with its cute little flagella, that would be one to 10 micrometers long, excluding the flagella. If you're looking at your cells, animal cells, they would be 10 to 100 micrometers long. That's still way too big for where we want to go. We want to get down to nanometers. So a virus like that flu virus that's been going around, that's about 100 nanometers. And again, remember, a billion nanometers in this meter stick. And then to get down to a protein, we would have to go down to about 10 nanometers. And then DNA, super famous, the double helix, it has a diameter of approximately two nanometers. And you might think we're going to spend time talking about things like, how can we see DNA better? It's so famous. But DNA, no, we want to talk about proteins because they're the ones that do all the work. So I'm going to hand it over to Megan, and she's going to give you some examples. Hello. All right. So why do we care about the structure of these tiny objects uh, that make up all living things? Well, apart from the reason that they're a pretty significant percentage of your body mass, they also perform all kinds of really specific tasks in your body and in all cells. Uh, for instance, Hemoglobin uh, is in red blood cells, and that helps carry oxygen around your body through the blood. Uh, calcium pumps will um, replenish important ions that are depleted during muscle contractions. Alpha amylase enzymes are in your saliva. They break down long car carbohydrate chains into simple sugars. And antibodies protect your uh, body system from infection. There are actually, you know, over 30,000 different kinds of proteins in living things, and each one has a very separate, specific task that depends acutely on its structure. So let's take a little backtrack and talk a little bit about um, how do proteins get their structure in the first place. So in spite of this sort of diversity of tasks that proteins have, they're all made up of the same 21 building blocks, 
These all have pretty similar structures, and they kind of vary according to what these side chains consist of. Proteins are uh, a chain of amino acids that uh, come together in a sequence. DNA provides instructions for the order and type of amino acids that make up this sequence. Um, this sort of comes off as a chain or a ribbon with side groups kind of hanging out of it. And we call the core of this the protein backbone. Depending on what kinds of amino acids are in the protein sequence, it folds together into a very specific three-dimensional shape. Sometimes these are drawn as these space-filling models where every sphere represents a single atom in the protein. We're going to kind of jog back and forth in this talk between these space-filling models and uh, representation where the protein looks a little bit more like sticks. That represents the chemical bonds. So knowing what this three-dimensional structure is is extremely important for understanding how proteins work, how they do their jobs. So some, here's an example. Some bacteria will make proteins that somehow bind and deactivate antibiotics, um, giving them antibiotic resistance. So we call these superbugs because they're resistant to normal kinds of antibiotic therapy. But all we really knew before we had the structure of one of these proteins the bacteria makes is, okay, it somehow binds the antibiotic and somehow breaks it apart, but we don't really know how this works. Once we have the structure... Um, we can see that there's a little divot, kind of a little pocket, which is circled here on the blue protein in yellow. And that is just a perfect fit for this red antibiotic to bind right in there, just kind of tucks right in. And if we zoom in on the pocket, we can see that the antibiotic is held in the pocket by two zinc ions. Um, so the protein holds the antibiotic there while it kind of chews it up, it cleaves it, makes it totally ineffective. So with this kind of information, we can now say, okay, maybe we can make a different kind of antibiotic that doesn't bind into this protein pocket in this specific way. Or we could make another kind of chemical, an inhibitor that binds into the pocket first and blocks antibiotics from coming in and binding and getting broken. Um, however, just having a structure is not enough to really understand how some proteins work. Some proteins also have motion as an important part of their function. So this is a calcium pump shown in blue, and it sits in a lipid membrane. So it's a cell membrane made of sort of fatty lipids that's shown in white. This is what's called a membrane protein. So it crosses this lipid layer and uh, kind of exists on both sides of the membrane. Its job is to take calcium ions and move them from one side of the membrane to the other. But just looking at the still image, it's not really intuitive how this might work. However, once you see it in motion, it uh, becomes a little bit more clear that there are these sort of mechanical motions that goes from one structure to another that... Uh, manage to pump the calcium ions across the membrane. Uh, however, this is an animation. So, you know, we know a couple of structures that this pump takes, and this is sort of our speculation about how it gets from point A to point B. We really don't know all the sort of points in between A and B. 
So to understand how this protein works, we need to actually measure it while it's moving. So how do you measure structure in motion? Well, on the macro scale, you want to measure the shape of a macro object, like you or me, you take a picture. And if you want to measure how that object moves around, you take a movie. So what we really want are movies, molecular movies, of proteins while they're moving about. So how do movies sort of address these structure function questions? The first movie, to go back to the macro scale, was uh, actually made to answer a question about um, how horses gallop. So this guy named Leland Stanford, yes, that's Stanford, in uh, 1872 called up, well, he probably didn't call him up, wrote up, I don't know, um, got a hold of a guy named Edward Moybridge and asked the photographer to settle a debate. While a house, while a horse is galloping, is there any point in the stride where all four hooves are completely off the ground? This wasn't known because the human eye can't discern motion that quickly. And it was kind of an argument, apparently, at the time among racehorse owners. So Moybridge went down to the Palo Alto racetrack, which is not that far from Slack, and he set up a series of trip wires along the track that were connected to cameras. So as Stanford's racehorse galloped along, the trip wires were tripped and snapshots were taken with the cameras. These snapshots became the frames of Moybridge's movie, which clearly shows that there are certain points in the gallop where all four hooves are quite a distance off the ground. So how do we translate this to a microscopic scale, to the kind of tiny nanometer-sized objects that we care about? Well, first, we need some way to take frames. We need to take pictures of these tiny objects that we can put into sequence. I mean, if you want to take a picture of a micro-scale object, you could magnify it with a microscope. But once you get down to the sub-micron level, we start to have problems. So here's our, our buddy, Helicobacter pylori, in an ulcer in a human stomach. Um, you can pretty clearly discern the stomach lining cells or that darkest blue layer. You can sort of see the outlines of the cells, maybe some cell nuclei, some features. But when it comes to Helicobacter pylori, who's inside the red circle, he's just a bunch of dark blips. Like, you can't really see him in any kind of detail, and his flagella is all but invisible. So why can't we just magnify this image? Why can't we use a microscope to look at tiny structures like flagella? And to answer that question, we need this perspective of a physicist. So I'm going to invite Matthias back onto the stage. Thank you. Yeah, why, why can't we just increase the magnification to see the tiny details on that bacterium? Well, it actually has to do with the fact that we are trying to view this object with light, optical light. And as you may know, uh, light is an electromagnetic wave that's associated with a certain wavelengths. And it turns out the wavelength of light is about half a micrometer. Green light is about half a micrometer. And if you want to view objects that are smaller than that size, you, you're running into trouble because you, you know, need a shorter wavelength to view the object. So this is illustrated here. If you view a bacterium with you know, regular light or long wavelengths, uh, it is somewhat blurry. You can go to shorter wavelengths. You can go to blue light, which is a 350 or 400, 400 nanometers. 
and things become a little clearer, but they're still, you know, the fine details are still fuzzy. So in order to view those, we actually have to go to even shorter wavelengths, and we are relieving, uh, relieving the visible range. So here's a graph that shows the, the entire electromagnetic wave spectrum, how we say, uh, long wavelengths on the far left and very short wavelengths on the far right. In the middle is the optical light wavelengths range. It's actually a very small range in, in that whole range. It's a logarithmic scale. Um, and to the longer wavelength side, we have infrared, we have microwaves, and ultimately radio waves. We can be meters. But we, we are interested in the, in the smaller objects. So on the nano side, um, you have um, on, the, on the blue side of the spectrum, violet, and then ultraviolet, and then soft x-rays and x-rays and hard x-rays. And we are particularly interested in these micro and nano objects, you know, cells, uh, protein, protein cluster, uh, complexes, DNA. They are, you know, in the case of proteins, they're on the, on the order of you know, some nanometers, tens of nanometers for large complexes. So if we want to have a chance to image those, we need to use wavelengths that are actually much smaller than these 10 nanometers because you don't only want to see the object as a black dot like in the microscope image, but you want to resolve features that are smaller than these 10 nanometers. So we have to go um, to x-rays, uh, x-rays of, of wavelengths of about 0.1 nanometers, or some people call this an angstrom. Um, so this is the, uh, the typical x-ray wavelengths that's used. Of course, um, you have heard about x-rays, right? X-rays were discovered over 100 years ago in Germany by Röntgen, um, who found that x-rays is some kind of radiation that is very penetrating. It kind of goes through a hand or through objects and it's invisible, but you can visualize the effects of x-rays with a photographic film. It will blacken photographic film. And he realized very early on that you can actually use that for imaging. And on the right-hand side, a very famous picture, I think it's the hand of his wife with a ring on it, and you see that the, um, the areas that are dense absorb the x-rays more. This is actually a negative image, you know, because film gets black where x-rays hit the film. The film stays white where x-rays don't penetrate. So this is a negative image, but you can use that to visualize the bones inside the hand. And of course, this method has been refined over uh, more than 100 years, and now we have modern X-ray imaging, which can actually give us brilliant, brilliant images. Right? Not only can we use it in, in medicine to look for bone fractures and things, but we can also really resolve fine details on small objects like insects or fleas and, and even smaller things. So this type of imaging usually works in, in a direct form, what we call direct imaging. So you have a, uh, an object that you want to image, and you have x-rays come in, and they go through the object, and then some x-rays get transmitted, some get absorbed, you know, and the denser areas absorb more x-rays than the not-so-dense areas, and this kind of gives an image on your film, or nowadays we're using detectors, and those are semiconductor-based detectors like CMOS cameras or CCD cameras, not, uh, not dissimilar from what you have in your cell phone, just, just larger area. Um, so this works very well for imaging on, on a macro scale. But if you try to do this with small objects, now I told you we need some short wavelengths, X-ray wavelengths to image things on a small scale. It, it doesn't work that way if you try direct imaging. And the reason is that small objects are very small, so they don't absorb X-rays very well. So if you had a nano object in front of a camera, um, pretty much all the X-rays would go right through and you wouldn't see any, any contrast. There's another practical problem is that the camera has usually detector pixels that are larger than the object you try to image. So you don't get a, even if you would have some absorption, you wouldn't get a good image. So that's a problem, but there's a workaround which is called X-ray scattering. 
So of the X-rays that go through the nano-objects, a very, very small fraction, so we're talking about 99.9999% go through, but a very small fraction actually scatters of atoms in the object. And these X-rays that scatter at a, at a larger angle that are away from the incident X-ray radiation from the incident X-ray beam, so you can detect those with a sensitive detector um, around, around the central part where the main part of the beam goes through. And that can be used for imaging, except it is not direct imaging, like in the X-rays we saw with the hand. It is a, it's diffraction imaging. So the, the image that you record, the scatter pattern that you record, is not the, image, the direct image of the object. It's, it's a, the structure of the object is actually encoded in this pattern. So you get fairly complex and sometimes very beautiful diffraction patterns, and then you have to use mathematical algorithms to back-calculate what the structure is of that object. So all good, right? Um, well, there's another problem with X-rays. X-rays are fairly energetic radiation, which means um, you know, X-rays can break chemical bonds. They can actually change the chemical nature and the structure of the object that you try to image. So if you wanted to image a single protein complex with X-rays, right, using the diffraction, um, the, the signal from a single molecule is relatively small. So you could try to turn up the X-ray intensity and just expose it longer. Um, you run into the problem that while you're doing that, you're starting to destroy the structure you want to measure. And before you even have a meaningful diffraction image of that single cell or a single protein complex, the thing is totally fried and, and, and kaput. Um, so, of course, people, people knew about this problem, and there's, there's another workaround around that. So what you do is you can take many identical copies of a, of a protein and arrange them in a regular array called a crystal. And then what happens is, as you shine X-rays onto that crystal, um, each one of these molecules scatters a few of the X-ray photons. Each molecule gets scattered, it gets, gets damaged a, a little bit, but overall you can get a measurable diffraction pattern that encodes the structural information for the protein, and you can then um, reconstruct the structure. So this is called X-ray crystallography, and has been hugely successful in, in solving many, many protein structures, right? So the strategy is you purify a protein, of interest, and then you make it form a crystal, and then you hold the crystal in an X-ray beam and, and record a diffraction pattern. And often you, know, you rotate the crystal because you want to view the molecules from different sides. So as you rotate the crystal, you get different patterns, and then you put all these patterns together with some you know, clever algorithms and computation. And this is um, you know, a fairly complex operation to, to retrieve the structure from this. And there's a bunch of mathematical tricks you need to play in some cases. So as I said, this was hugely successful, and this is a graph of number of solved protein structures as a function of time. Um, there's a, a thing called the protein data bank where everybody deposits structures that they, that they solve. So by now we have about 130,000 protein structures in there. And that increased, you know, the number increased over the last two decades. Um, and in part this was actually facilitated by, by some new type of X-ray source then, which is called a synchrotron, which is a very bright X-ray source. Not as bright as an X-ray laser, but fairly bright, and you can use synchrotrons to determine protein structures. So huge success. We have a large number of protein structures that we know. So we're done, right? Well, unfortunately, no. It turns out the most interesting types of proteins that we're interested in the big complexes that are embedded in cellular membranes, they, what, what we call me membrane proteins, they typically resist crystallization. They're hard to crystallize. Um, and if they crystallize, usually the quality is not, not as good as, as you need. Right? You need this, this really be a nice regular array. 
Um, so as a result, only 0.6% of all structures measured so far are membrane proteins. Also, we know that membrane proteins make up about 30% of all proteins. Only a tiny fraction of the salt structures is membrane proteins. So, of course, people have known about this for a long time, and they're trying to find workarounds, how to make them crystallize and things like that, with, with some limited success. But um, you know, about almost 20 years ago, some scientists um, were kind of discussing a crazy idea. They were basically asking a question. They were, were going through these steps. Why, why do we need crystals? Why can we not image single molecules? And I told you, with single molecules, if you have enough X-rays to, in theory, get an image, a diffraction image, you destroy the molecule before you have that image. Well, they were basically asking the question, can we, can we make an X-ray pulse so intense and so short that we can get a measurable diffraction signal from a single molecule before the molecule gets destroyed? Um, and this was, this was dubbed um, diffraction before destruction. And uh, these researchers actually went through some mathematical modeling and calculations to figure out uh, how fast these damage processes happen. They happen really fast, but it's a finite time. And they figured out that, um, yeah, we would need a, a pulse that has you know, a lot of photons, but that, that, that pulse needs to be really short, about 10 to 100 femtoseconds, which is an incredibly short time. And Aaron is going to tell us more about a femtosecond. Yeah, when they mentioned femtoseconds, I was like, what the heck are you talking about? Because, yeah, biology world, micro, maybe nano. So here we go. It's time for metric prefixes again. So milli, one one thousandth, micro, one one millionth, nano, one one billionth, pico, one one trillionth. Don't ask a biologist to count past one one trillionth. I don't know what comes next. I know it has 14 zeros. So what does this really mean? So first of all, let me just get into my head. 14 zeros. So that's 0 0.0000000000000001 seconds. Crazy, crazy short. So all of my basic references don't work for this, except for one thing, light. Light travels really, really, really fast. So maybe light can do something in one second that I can conceive of. If you go outside at night and you look up at the moon, it's far enough away that it took that light that I used to see the moon one second to get to me. So what does it do in one femtosecond? Well, it's still too crazy tiny because light can only travel across less than 1% of the width of my hair in a femtosecond. That's just crazy. But it's short enough so that we can produce diffraction before destruction. And let's see that in action. 10 to 100 femtoseconds, x-ray, boom, diffraction before, diffra uh, diffraction before destruction. I knew I was going to tongue twist that one. To obtain images of very small living organisms, such as cyanobacteria, scientists can use x-ray pulses and a technique called x-ray diffraction. First, cyanobacteria in an aerosol form are placed into the path of an X-ray pulse. The pulse collides with the bacterium, and the photons that make up the pulse scatter. With more common X-ray tools, radiation from an X-ray pulse will damage and destroy the bacterium before scientists can get a clear image. But if the pulse is extremely short, the photons can outrun the damage and scatter before the bacterium is destroyed. Finally, 
The scattered photons are collected on a detector. Scientists can then use the pattern on the detector to reconstruct the image of the cell. Thank you. Yeah, so this is very, very impressive. So if you look closely at this, this short video, you saw that in the, in the short pulse case, that cloud of X-ray photons that were hitting that bacterium were actually shorter than the bacterium. And I mentioned earlier, I mentioned earlier that bacteria of the size of a micrometer or a few. So this cloud of photons is maybe 0.2 micrometers, which is you know, what light travels in, in about a femtosecond. Um, so it's a very, very interesting concept that uh, researchers came up with. And they, they talked about, you know, if we had an X-ray source that would produce these pulses, uh, how would we do an experiment? So they proposed an experimental strategy where, you know, you have an object you want to measure, a protein you want to measure, and you have many identical copies of this protein, and you inject them such that they intercept the path of the X-ray pulses that come from that machine. And then when an X-ray pulse hits um, one of these proteins, you do, do some X-ray scattering, some diffraction, and you can produce a very weak diffraction signal from a single molecule, and you capture that on a detector. And then you just repeat this many, many times, because the signal from a single molecule, a single shot, is not really large enough to get to a structure, and moreover, you want to actually view that object from different orientations. So you do this, let's say, a million times, and then you just use some clever math and algorithms to put all this, this data together, right? So the diffraction patterns look a little different depending on the orientation of the object. So you can sort your patterns by, by the viewing angle. Um, and then you can average the patterns from the same direction to enhance your signal-to-noise to build up more signal. And then, you know, ultimately you put it together into a structure. Uh, this all sounded very crazy about 20 years ago when this was discussed. But it actually led to um, uh, people thinking about how to build a machine like this. Um, people had built free electron lasers before, but they were kind of in the infrared or in the optical regime. They were not in the X-ray regime. Um, but it convinced then uh, the Department of Energy to invest money in this and um, commit to, to building one of these first machines here in the Bay Area, the LCLS. Um, Livermore was very involved in, in the process from, from the early days. There was a, a softer X-ray version of that machine in Hamburg, Germany. It's now called Flash. Not, not enough to do atomic-level uh, imaging, but it was enough to, to check um, how fast things explode when you ex expose them to these short X-ray pulses. So we did some early studies to show that, in principle, it should be possible. And then Livermore was very involved at LCLS. Uh, Livermore helped build the X-ray transport optics for the machine. And Livermore, was, you know, Livermore researchers were, were part of teams that did the first experiments there. Now, there's a, a nice video that our colleagues at Slack produced that actually explain how, how do you make an X-ray pulse that short, what, what is actually an X-ray free electron laser, and we'll watch that now. The Slack National Accelerator Laboratory is located in the heart of California's beautiful San Francisco Bay Area. Operated by Stanford University for the U.S. Department of Energy, Slack has been home to the world's longest particle accelerator for nearly 50 years. In 2009, Slack ushered in a new era in its long history of physics research with a new kind of laser called the Linac Coherent Light Source, or LCLS. The LCLS is the first laser in the world to produce hard X-rays, which can be used to see down to the level of atoms and molecules, adding almost half a mile onto the original two-mile-long accelerator facility.
the LCLS uses the final one-third of the accelerator to produce powerful pulses of X-ray laser light. Scientists at SLAC and around the world will use these powerful beams to create movies of how atoms and molecules move and behave on some of the shortest time scales imaginable. The LCLS starts with the drive laser, which generates a precise pulse of ultraviolet light, seen here in red. The drive laser pulse travels down to the injector gun, where it strikes the surface of a copper plate inside the gun. The copper cathode plate responds with a burst of electrons, seen here in blue, which are guided into the linear accelerator. Inside the accelerator, the electron bunch encounters the first of two magnetic chicanes, or bunch compressors. These chicanes help even out the arrangement of electrons of different energies in each pulse by sending the pulses along a slight S-curve. The compressed pulse emerges from the chicane and is accelerated further, gaining energy as it travels. The electron bunch then encounters the second bunch compressor. The second bunch compressor is longer than the first because the electrons in the pulse now have even greater energy. The electron pulse continues to the end of the accelerator at nearly the speed of light, finishing the boost phase of its ride at an energy over 12 billion electron volts. The electrons enter the beam transport hall, along which they travel through a series of diagnostic monitors and focusing magnets that help keep the beam precisely shaped and on course. Here, into the undulator hall, the electron pulse enters the heart of the LCLS, where the X-ray laser light is generated. The undulator hall houses a long array of special magnets which comprise thousands of alternating north-south magnetic poles spaced only a few millimeters apart. These alternating poles cause the electron bunch to swerve back and forth in an undulating motion that forces the electrons to give off X-rays. As the electron bunch and X-rays proceed together, they start to interact with each other. The electrons arrange themselves in parallel sheets, causing the X-rays to become in tune with each other or coherent, with an enormous boost in X-ray power. Once the X-ray laser light is generated, the electrons must be safely discarded before the X-rays can be used for experiments. The beam dump uses a powerful electromagnet to divert the electrons down to a special chamber that absorbs the electrons and dissipates their energy. The X-ray pulse unaffected by the pole of the magnets, continues on in the straight line. When fully operational, this entire process will happen up to 120 times per second. The X-ray laser pulse is now ready for scientists to use in one of the six LCLS experimental stations. The experimental instruments each comprise a suite of vacuum chambers, detectors, and sample environments. Each instrument will perform different kinds of experiments, investigating the kinds, arrangements, and motions of the building blocks of matter. For example, 
The LCLS pulse can be used to make images of single molecules, even though the beam is powerful enough to instantly disintegrate such a tiny sample. Each pulse is so fast that an image is captured in the sliver of time before the molecules can fly apart. Images captured in this way will be strung together frame by frame to create the world's first molecular movies of individual biological molecules in action. So, that video made it look pretty easy to get a sample right in front of the x-ray pulse right at the exact right time. In reality, this is actually a pretty complicated and technically difficult problem that we've been working on at Livermore for quite some time. The general idea is if you feed in too much, too fast, all of your precious sample will be wasted in between x-ray pulses. Too little, too slow, and you'll never collect enough diffraction patterns to collect or to calculate a whole structure. And you may not replenish the sample fast enough for the next x-ray pulse. So thanks to the hard work and ingenuity of our friends at University of Buffalo, we have a game that can put this in your hands and you can be the frustrated x-ray scientist. How this works is crystals will stream down into the path of the x-ray beam and it's your job to zap them with x-rays in order to collect data. But you have to collect enough diffraction patterns to solve a structure. So here we have reigning champion Lauren and Woo! the challenger Otto, who is Woo! going to take it. <laughs> so let's go ahead and start it on up. All right, here comes rhodopsin. Rhodopsin, it's a visual protein that um, allows you to see in low light. It's a light activated. Oh man, you guys are too good at this. This is way better than the hit rates we normally get. <laughs> All right, already a structure has been solved. Ooh, Fantastic. the challenger is coming in. I know, right? Tough competition. So rhodopsin is one of these membrane proteins we're talking about. People right now, our collaborators, are working on molecular movies of this molecule. It undergoes kind of a structural change when you illuminate it that uh, can be measured with this time-resolved x-ray diffraction technique. And it's also purple, and it's pretty. <laughs> <laughs> All right, stage two. Photosystem two, another light-activated protein. Let's see. Oh, it's a bit faster. Ooh, you guys are wasting x-rays. Come on. Those are nice diffraction patterns, though. Oof. Oh, man. Oh, uh, who will win? Oh, dang, oh. that was a sweep. Goodness gracious. <laughs> uh, all and right. Otto takes it. Photosystem 2 is a photosynthetic protein that uh, absorbs light and funnels that energy into... Um, generating the oxygen that we all breathe. All right, good job, guys. Very nice structures. Give them a round of applause. Okay, but in reality, it's actually even more difficult than this because as the scientist that's doing these experiments, you're not in control of the x-ray pulses, you're in control of the sample. The x-ray pulse will come 120 times a second, no matter what. So you have to very carefully position and flow your sample in at just the right rate to get it into the path of the x-ray beam and just sort of hope that 
some of those 120 pulses per second will actually hit something. So this has uh, generated a lot of interesting new results. And to tell you about some of them, uh, welcome Matthias back to the stage. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> yeah, I can only reiterate it's a real challenge to get the sample in the beam at the right place, right time. And, and while we would like to have methods to just take one particle at a time right in the right place, it, the current approach is still a little brute force, which is you know, trying to spray things into the general region where the X-rays are with a liquid jet or an aerosol jet. But it actually works quite well. So we were talking about LCLS. It opened in 2009, and in 2011, it kind of got upgraded to the really higher X-ray energy that, that we need to the short wavelengths. And from the, the early days of LCLS, people were doing experiments to, to prove that this, this general method works. So you do this initially, of course, with objects where you know the structure, because you need to show that you can reproduce structures that are already known with a, with a different method. And that was done very successfully in the, in the first year or so of LCLS. But then people very quickly turned to, to proteins that were not fully solved or whether they were interesting scientific questions. And uh, one example is cathepsin B, which is a, a protein that's associated with sleeping sickness. As you may know, sleeping sickness is um, you know, a disease that's very prevalent in Africa. It affects about 60 million people each year, about 30,000 die each year. And it is caused by a parasite, Trypanosoma brutsei, that's shown in the middle, the little squiggly things in between the red blood cells. So there's actually a real image from the patient where these things are in the blood of the patient. Um, and it's transmitted, the, 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 the parasite is transmitted by the tsetse fly. So it turns out the, uh, some of the health effects of that disease come from cathepsin B. It is a protease, it's a protein that chews up other proteins. And um, it is produced by the parasite. And interestingly, it doesn't chew up the, the parasite from inside out. And you know, people were wondering about that. Um, why, why is it not attacking the parasite? And it was kind of known that there are two forms of this protein. One is the active form that comes out of the parasite and attacks human proteins when a human is infected. But uh, there's an inactive form that is, is the form that is in the parasite when the parasite produces it. So the structure of the... Of the um, active form was known, but it was not known what, how, how the inactive form looks. So researchers um, you know, expressed that inactive form of the protein. They grew little microcrystals of that inactive form. And you see a picture of the microcrystals, about a micrometer in diameter, 10 micrometers long, which is kind of typical size for, for objects that, that we look at at LCLS. Um, and then they just injected many, many of these crystals into into the X-ray beam at LCLS, which shown on the right, right, you have some kind of injector where these crystals come in a little, little liquid stream, you intercept them with X-rays, and you get diffraction images from each one of these hits. So it turns out they, you know, they, they measured this for actually quite some time. They, they had altogether about 4 million X-ray shots at that shed, and out of these 4 million X-ray shots, about 300,000 actually hit something, uh, hit crystals, and of the 300,000, about 170, 180,000 were, were hits that were producing a diffraction signal that was really useful for reconstruction. So then they used that data to, to integrate it and reconstruct the structure. And they found that, uh, interestingly, in this inactive form of the cassepsin B, you have the, the active form, atta and uh, attached to the active form is, is some, some other short protein, or uh, what they call a propeptide, that acts as a... Um, as an inhibitor or a safety cap. 
So it's preventing the protein from doing this chewing action inside the parasite. So it's covering kind of the active side of the protein. Um, and you know, with, the, with this method, we could measure the structure to very high resolution to about two angstrom, which are almost the size of an atom. And so from the detailed structure of how this propeptide or cap binds to the active protein, uh, we can learn how this inhibition mechanism works. And hopefully, we can use that information to design a drug that will do the same thing in human patients and this way kind of mitigate disease. So this is just one example of, of the many different proteins that were looked at fairly on at LCLS. But of course, in this talk, we, we promised you molecular movies. So how, how do we make a molecular movie using LCLS? And I'm going to illustrate this on a, on a simple example, a small molecule, but the same principle works with a large molecule, with a biomolecule or a protein. Uh, let's say you have a, a molecule that's in some kind of state, and then it hap something happens to that molecule and it undergoes a structural change. For example, in this, in this case, a molecule absorbs uh, light and the bond is broken and it goes from a cyclic form to a, an open form. How, how do you get from one form to the other? This is kind of the question we're asking. And we'll ask the same question later with you know, much bigger proteins. So we'd like to understand how this, transition, how this transition evolves. And the structures at various time points measured with an X-ray laser um, can help. So what you do is, you know, first of all, you need to understand your starting structure. So you measure your ground state or your starting state. And you can do that with, with an X-ray laser like LCLS. So you take these molecules, put them in an X-ray beam. You get diffraction images. They're very weak. So you get many, 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 and you integrate the data. And you, you solve the structure of this uh, state. And then you ask a question, so how does, this, how does this state change when you illuminate the, uh, the sample? So you do the same experiment, except now you uh, shoot a, a pulse of optical light into that sample before it gets probed by the X-rays. And you can choose the time between the, the, laser, the optical laser and the X-ray laser. So you do this for a short time first. So you hit it with optical light, and then some short time later, you probe it with x-rays. And you do this many, many times. You get many, many diffraction images for that time point, and you put that together. You get the structure at that time. And then you can do the same thing again at a later time. Right? So you increase the delay between the optical pulse and the laser pulse. The, the x-ray laser always comes at a, at a constant rate, so what you can do is you can move the optical laser to a, a, an earlier time. We can do that by just turning a knob, essentially, on the laser. And you know, again, we get many diffraction images, we get the structure, and now we have the structure at that second time point. And of course, you can do this uh, many times. You're kind of only limited by the, the amount of time you have on the X-ray laser to do your experiment. And at some point, you, you, take a, you get a structure of the, final, of the final time point or the end state. And then you can put this all together. And now you're having several frames of a molecular movie, very similar to the frames we had for the horse. Right? And if you play them all after each other, you kind of have a movie. Um, this is actually illustrated in a little more detail in the following movie, where I, where I stole those figures from. I just thought I'd walk you through that, because the movie is a little quick with that. So this is our colleague, Mike Minetti from Slack. My name is uh, Michael Minetti. I'm a staff scientist here at LCLS at Slack National Accelerator Laboratory. Uh, and I am the department head for the soft x-ray department at LCLS. So we uh, here, at, for the very first time at LCLS, we have taken a molecular movie of a gas-phase chemical reaction uh, using the ultra-fast capabilities of LCLS. 
We chose to look at and monitor a chemical by the name of 1,3-cyclohexadiene because the reaction is quite well known over the last 30 or 40 years uh, that this, this molecule undergoes a ring altering or a structural changing event when optical laser light is shined upon it. These type of ring opening reactions are very common even in, in, in natural product biology. But what wasn't known are the exact time scales at which how these structural dynamics occur and how the structure actually evolves in time. To take these images, we use a technique called X-ray scattering. As the molecules populate our custom-built scattering X-ray scattering vessel, as the X-rays progress through the, the, the target molecule, they scatter. And as the scattering pattern occurs, the X-rays or the scattered X-rays are collected on a large area uh, X-ray detector. So as these things scatter on the detector, the, their positions are very meaningful and that's how you infer back what's going on in the molecules as its structure is evolving. So we produced the molecular movie by looking at a series of time-delayed pictures probed by the X-ray pulse. So we have an optical pulse that sets the reaction afoot, and then we come with this ultra-bright source in LCLS, and we take little snapshots at different time delays uh, between the optical pulse and the X-ray, that being LCLS. And then we sew these frames, individual frames, back together, and we were able to watch this chemical reaction unfold on a very fast time scale. This is on the order of 100 to 200 quadrillionths of a second, or a sliver of time, or 200 millionths of a billionth of a second. Cool. But what, that was a relatively simple small molecule, and what our group cares about are biomolecular movies. So, uh, as I told you before, some of our colleagues have already started to try to record molecular movies of certain light-activated proteins, like rhodopsin or photosystem. But there's also another method that you can use to kind of trigger the start of your molecular movie. Some biomolecules change shape in response to um, being in an environment with other biomolecules or certain chemicals, kind of like mixing reactants together to start a chemical reaction. Um, the beta-lactamase that we talked about earlier, the protein that causes antibiotic resistance in some bacteria, is one of these uh, examples of people using this kind of mixing-type methodology to record a molecular movie. They mix lactamase with the antibiotic and watch the, the antibiotic bind and the protein break it up. Uh, another example is a, a result that recently came out of the National Ant Cancer Institute in which um, they took a riboswitch and wanted to see this riboswitch change shape in response to binding adenine. Riboswitches are short segments of RNA that change shape um, when they bind a small molecule. And these regulate what kind and how many of proteins are generated by your body. So they have a really important physiological role in things like cancer. So what they did was they took a solution of adenine and a solution of tiny crystals of the riboswitch, mixed them together, and then waited for defined periods of time to take diffraction snapshots they were able to take uh, four different frames in their molecular movie as the riboswitch kind of bent in its shape to accommodate the adenine. All right, so let's take a, a look at that process. The researchers used two pumps to precisely mix tiny crystals of the RNA segments, called riboswitches, with a special signaling protein, triggering the interaction. 
The mixture was then hit by an X-ray pulse from the LCLS, where the scattered X-rays were recorded by a detector and used to create high-resolution structures of the riboswitches. By allowing the biomolecules to mix for different periods of time, the researchers were able to take images at different stages of the process, but also enables researchers to study many kinds of biochemical interactions, which was not previously possible at LCLS. Okay, so using LCLS, we can do all kinds of science that we weren't able to do before. We can take measurements of biological samples without worrying that we're really measuring a damaged sample since the short pulses of the XFEL outrun the damage process. We can determine high-resolution structures of uh, proteins that we weren't able to crystallize well enough to use conventional methods to solve. Because we're measuring at um, room temperature, because damage is no longer an issue, uh, chemicals and biomolecules are free to move around, and we can take diffraction snapshots and sequence them into molecular movies. Um, most of these movies right now only have a few frames, but the field is moving really quickly. In the near future, we hope to be able to take biomolecular movies of single nano-objects, like viruses and these things called nanolipoprotein particles, things that aren't confined by crystals. A ton of progress has already been made at LCLS, and this has inspired um, an upgrade to LCLS, so they're actually lengthening the accelerator uh, down the existing tunnel. Um, because so many results have come out of this machine, and uh, this is also inspiring people across the globe to build their own free electron lasers, um, as the scientific community kind of realizes the power of this technique. None of that progress, of course, would be possible if it weren't for you know, our collaborations with huge groups of scientists that all come together to do these experiments. Uh, our group at Lawrence Livermore consists of myself, Matthias, Brent Segelke, and Matthew Coleman. Um, and we collaborate with people across the United States and around the world. And with that, I'd like to thank you all for coming and would uh, invite any questions that you might have. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.